Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, and joined, as always, by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? It is great, Jerry. It's Friday. We're we're chugging along in the Biff Review, getting closer to exam date, uh, but had a great week with the, the crew, and people are learning. They're, they're moving along. Um, so, yeah, things are great. How are things going with you? Oh, good, good, good. I mean, we're in the thick of things. It is definitely our busy season. It's it's kind of funny, you know, so most professions have like one busy season, whereas we have three busy seasons we have three. <laughs> every year with the with the exam cycle. So <laughs> um, I'm, I'm pretty used to it at this point. But, you know, the ebbs and flows, we are definitely in a uh, a very high tide area of the year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. But exciting. We're going to have a, a whole bunch of newly minted CFP professionals very shortly. And uh, yeah, it's been a, been a good cycle so far. Definitely. Well, we got a great topic for today that is uh, relevant to everyone, you know, and even not just CFPs. We literally picked the broadest topic that applies to the most possible people uh, that we could. And that is, of course, uh, estate planning for everyone. Estate planning for the common man, I might go so far as to say. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, absolutely. And this this was inspired by an uh, article I read, I think, years ago at this point in the Journal of Financial Planning and really got me starting to think about how we presented estate planning in the program and just how it's done broadly. Because in CFP world, there's there's the alphabet soup of trust. There's all these crazy intra-family transfer techniques that happen, right? That are super sophisticated. But then there's a subset of estate planning that is is for the common person, right? And it's it's for everyone. And we wanted to really lock into that. So it's not just for the yacht owners out there or you know the Scrooge McDucks that are swimming in money, right? This is for for everyday people. And the reason is uh Everyone's going to die one day mm -hmm. and everyone owns something in their lifetime. And there are times where people uh, aren't able to just act on their own and function on their own. They're incapacitated. So these estate planning strategies are all about that. And we've just put them into one episode. So hopefully this is a really great reference for planners and CFP students going forward. Yeah. And I'm going to broaden that even more is like even people who don't own anything, you know, you could be oh, a yeah. Tibetan monk, you know, that has no possessions whatsoever, but you still probably have final wishes. And that is also what estate planning is all about is, you know, making sure your final wishes are also fulfilled and the things that you want to happen, happen, especially we're going to get into it, uh, especially when it comes to children and other loved ones. Yeah, a great point. So uh, let's kind of just kick things off, you know, right, right at uh, the beginning of, you know, Planning while we're still alive, you know, what are the kind of common steps that people uh, can take to ensure that, you know, their estate is, is set up in a, in a, you know, an organized way without having to worry about, you know, like we said, all those crazy trusts and, you know, lifetime exclusion and, you know, for the people who don't have, you know, 12, 12 $12.6 million in the bank, but, you know, maybe have, you know, uh, $200,000 in, in equity between their home and other possessions, you know, what, what steps are they going to take right off the bat? Sure. Uh, one thing that you can do, and there are, are people who I think, you know, tongue in cheek, call it estate planning uh, for the non-wealthy client, or, you know, the poor man's estate planning is to do some estate planning types of strategies as far as 
property goes with titling, with how you title the property. So if if you just own something, you know, what, what do I have here? I have my microphone that I used to word, right? This is not something I have a separate title on. It's just mine. It's something that I own. And that's sole, uh, solely owned property. If we wanted to figure out how to transfer this, I could I could do it a couple of ways. I could I could gift it during my lifetime if I found someone that like to record and I'm no longer recording podcasts or doing any music stuff. I just gift it to someone that's during the lifetime. But at death, if I wanted to make sure someone specific got it and it's solely owned, that has to be put into a document that's going to guide who gets it. And the will is that piece. So the will for solely owned property and for a couple of other uh, property titlings is going to be a place where where you document who you want to get what. It's super important in estate planning, uh, especially like we talked about in a previous episode, if you have children. That was something that we covered in an episode a couple couple episodes prior. But the will is going to be a place not only to transfer property, but also to establish guardians for your kids. Because uh, I, don't, I forget how you put this, Jerry, but it was so good. Uh, I guess thinking about your estate without these things, right? So I forgot what exactly you said, but like, imagine if your kids go to- Oh, like, like the evil, the evil step. I always think of like the, the lemony, the lemony snicket uh, series of unfortunate <laughs> events. You know, yeah. the, the three orphan kids go to their evil uh, genius uh, step uncle. <laughs> That's right. That could happen if um, if it's in your state's rules. Because yeah. if you if you don't have this document, to guide where your property goes and who's going to care for your kids, the state determines that. It's it's a process called intestacy. It just means that you're dying without a will or any direction as to where your belongings go. And each state has a different way of settling your estate and transferring your property. And it's pretty formula-based. I mean, it gives no thought to who you were in your lifetime and what your wishes may have been. It's just, okay, Adam passed away. He has a surviving spouse. He has two kids. He has family that's local. He has family a couple states away. This is the formula we use for Adam's stuff. Even if Adam wanted everything to go to his wife, right? So the will is going to do that. Uh, but one of the downsides to the will is that it goes through this process called probate. Do you want to tell us a little bit about probate, Jerry? Yeah, probate is a pain in the butt, as I like to call it. Uh, but basically, you know, uh, all of your things uh, go in front of a judge. Uh, it is public record, which is a huge downside for it. You know, we're not going to get into kind of the trust and stuff, uh, you know, the, the rich man's estate planning. But a big reason why they do that is because those trusts help you avoid probate and thus avoid it becoming part of the public record. And they're very, you know, private individuals. They don't want their dirty laundry aired out. And so they try and avoid probate at all costs. However, most individuals are going to have to go through probate anyways. Uh, and the, the fewer estate planning processes you have in place, the more likely you are to go through probate in which you're going to go in front of a judge. Well, actually your surviving family members are going to go in front of a judge. And that judge is basically going to divvy up all your stuff and, you know, give it to who they think the rightful owners are. Uh, and like Adam said, if you don't have a will in place dictating who you want your rightful owners to be, that judge is going to decide. And that judge might not see eye to eye with you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's especially important with the kids because 
I know in Connecticut, for example, where I live, the rule is if you die without a will and without any documentation about guardianship, that it goes to uh, it's it's blood related first relatives, and I think it's <clears throat> um, older family members is the way that it. So if me and my wife were to die at once and we didn't have a will in place with guardianship that was documented, my kids would go to my mother in law, father in law, um, who are now in their seventies and have some challenges of their own. So just based on that, that's just not the right fit. But if we were just to leave it and let it be, and you know. YOLO, we don't need estate planning documents, right? Yeah. Uh, that's where my kids would end up. And that's one of the, the big objectives with estate planning. I share this with our classes at Bryant and Biff, is that control is, is a big estate planning objective. It's not all about tax avoidance, tax reduction, um, even philanthropy and giving and all that stuff. It's about control. It's about you asserting control over your family your belongings and how you want things to look after you pass away. And and we've seen so many, you know, horror stories. I'm sure our listeners can probably, you know, think of a few examples, but you know, you have these things where you have a married couple and then let's say the dad is a deadbeat dad goes out for, you know, milk and cigarettes and uh is still gone 5 years later. So, you know, the the wife is single mother raising the kids you know, something tragic happens uh, to the mother and the mother passes away. Uh, but luckily, you know, that mother had a good support network. She has really close friends. Um, you know, maybe she has an aunt or something like that that takes care of the kids. And, you know, those kids are still in a very good community. Um, they're with people that they love. But then all of a sudden, you know, deadbeat dad comes sliding back into the picture and says, oh, you know what? I want my kids. I'm taking my kids. If that goes to the courts, and there's no will or any legal documents in place, 99.99% of the time, those kids are going to go with the deadbeat dad. And that's probably not something that that mother uh, wanted, uh, you know, while she was alive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it is, it's a control thing and uh, will absolutely one of, one of the top documents that we want to have in place and then update as life changes. Uh, because every, I mean, just think about your own lives out there. Every three to five years, there's usually something fairly significant that's happened. That's different. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's always good to just check in on these once in a while, just to make sure, Hey, are there any, any major changes? Sometimes it won't take going to an estate planning attorney again and having them rewrite the thing and having to resign it. There's something that's called a codicil that allows an update of the will just for a couple little provisions. So it's just, it's kind of like uh, the, the cross out and edit version, you know, uh, changes, edit changes that you see when you're in Word, right? But that's what a codicil will do. I, I think of it almost as the Will's post-it note. You put a post-it right. note, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is updated, it looks like this. Yeah. Uh, but super, super important. And um, one, of, one of the things that's going to allow most people to control where things go, but I had mentioned briefly titling, property titling. That can be yeah. really effective too, because with certain property titlings, there is something that's called survivorship. And uh, specifically, one of the most common ones, you'd see JTWROS uh, next to a, a certain piece of property. That's joint tenants with rights of survivorship. 
Uh, it's available to both spouses and non-spouses. But really what it does by having that titling on a piece of property, it ensures that at death, there's an automatic survivorship that kicks in and transfers that property to the new owners without having to go through probate. So that's another way around and, probate. And it and it supersedes the will too. That's a big thing. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and that's why, you know, your broker will always ask you to update the beneficiaries on your accounts because that is binding no matter what you have in your will. Cause I remember when I was, you know, working uh, the trenches at a, at a brokerage firm, you know, doing the paperwork and doing transfers, um, you know, a client would die and we would look who the beneficiaries would be. And I, and when I first started, I asked like, well, don't we need to get like a will or something? And they're like, no, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter what's on the will. It says the beneficiary is this person. We're giving the money to this person. We don't care anything about the will or court probate or anything like that beneficiaries on the account supersede anything uh, that is on the will itself. Absolutely. Um, the exception being, I think a, a big one that comes up is spouses on 401ks. I think a, a lot of people might not necessarily know this, but uh, I think it's all states, if not all states, as most states, you're legally required to have your spouse be your beneficiary unless that spouse uh, you know, agrees to not be the beneficiary. And oh, wow on someone else being the beneficiary. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That I mean, that's, it makes a lot of sense. I, I hadn't heard that, but that's, that's new. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, we've actually just hit on a group of things called that are altogether called will substitutes, right? So the way you get around probate and that process Jerry was talking about, that's costly and, and public and just not fun is through trusts, which Jerry had mentioned. Uh, through the operation of law, which I just mentioned about survivorship and different property titlings, um, and then by having beneficiaries or the contracts. So TLC is the acronym we use when we teach this. But yeah, that's that's a core one. Uh, you want to move on to some others here, Jerry? I think I think we can pivot into a different aspect of of the the state planning for all, and that being incapacity planning. Yeah, that's um, smart. Uh, real quick before we move on, though. Yeah, I just, sure. I pulled up the ruling on the 401k because I wanted to make sure. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually to the point where not only is your spouse have to be your beneficiary unless you have they, you know, written consent not to me, mm -hmm. even if you don't set a beneficiary on your 401k, your spouse is still automatically automatically your wow. beneficiary. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really cool. Never knew that. Yeah, so sometimes um, they force estate planning onto us, whether we want it or not. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, but yes, estate yeah, planning that, with zero effort. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, let's move on to you know it's not all uh, death and gloom. There's also estate planning to be had while you're still alive, and you know maybe not in the best uh, state, but you yeah. know if if you're unable to voice your wishes, you're going to definitely want some documentation in place to make sure that that takes care of itself. Absolutely. Um, so there's there's a series that that you'll you'll need. Um, I'm going to start with what I think is is probably the most important one of the group, uh, being a power of attorney. Yeah. Uh, what that's going to do is it's going to name someone that's a decision maker, that's able to act on your behalf to make key decisions about your finances, uh, about your health care and, and treatment. And 
there are different types of power of attorney documents. So we're we're speaking here about incapacity planning. Like Jerry said, you're not able to function on your own and there's someone that's going to step in and be able to handle matters while um, hopefully you can recover. Uh, power of attorneys take different shapes. I mean, you, you can see limited power of attorneys. I'm sure many of you out there listening on an investment account, if you're, you're giving trading discretion, right? You can give a limited power of authority to an advisor to trade the account. Uh, you can give limited power, power of authority <clears throat> to someone to sign a document on your behalf. And it just kind of comes and goes and then it's done and, and you're, you're done. But the two that we need to look to are either durable power of attorneys or springing power of attorneys. Yep. Um, durable power of attorneys start when you create the document. They go through incapacity when it happens without any, any stoppage. It's seamless. And all powers of attorney end at death of the individual. The difference with spring. Oh, go ahead. I just want to really highlight that because that's a huge thing that I see students get confused on all the time. For whatever reason, I think it's just the name durable. They assume that it lasts even past death. Um, And and it just doesn't. I, going back to my, my days working the trenches. Yeah. um, You know, we, we had someone who called up, you know, asking for a withdrawal. They had a, they had a durable power of attorney on the account. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't their account. They were basically taking care of an older relative who gave them during durable power of attorney. And they asked for a withdrawal and, you know, I just started chatting with them and they mentioned like, yeah, you know, it's been real sad ever since they've been gone. I'm like, what? (laughs) It's like, oh Oh, yeah, they, they died like two or three years ago. And I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> oh, immediately no. like i'm sorry i have to lock the account lock it down they they just thought like oh i have durable power of attorney they've been taking money out of this person's ira for you know years after they they've been dead i'm like you need to go talk to an accountant right now yeah yeah <laughs> uh, you can't is, have that happen yeah that's you you're withdrawing money from a deceased per, under a deceased person's social security number it doesn't matter that you had durable power of attorney that person's dead. This this account should have gone through the beneficiary process. Yeah, yeah. So, that doesn't that doesn't go to infinity and beyond. It right. stops. <laughs> it stops at death. Uh, wow. Um, yeah. The 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 other variety of that though uh, for incapacity is called springing power of attorney. I I always think of just a spring. Right. It's spring loaded. Yep, yep. When that person becomes incapacitated, the powers of attorney spring into action. But there's a big caveat. You need physician certification of their state to get the powers to be active. And that can actually create some time setbacks, which if given the option between the two, I think you go with durable just because you can have the documents set up, monitor them well in advance of the incapacity. Whereas if you if you have to wait on the physician certification, generally it's going to be quicker, but you never know. And you time is is really of the essence if someone's incapacitated and is relying on you to make those 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 key decisions yeah and these are really important conversations to have with your your loved ones because you don't want to be scrambling to put this documentation in place you know when they're already incapacitated you know yeah. speaking of kind of estate planning for everyone 
me and my girlfriend had this conversation. We were, you know, at home, we were watching uh Grey's Anatomy, which is a, yeah. uh, a favorite of my girlfriend's. And they had some episode, I think it was like inspired by the Terry Shivo case yeah, uh, where, you know, the person was uh, in a vegetative state and there was a mm-hmm. disagreement between the husband and then the woman's parents. And my girlfriend yeah. was like, well, if I, if I become in a vegetative state, like what would you do? And, and all of a sudden I'm having an estate planning conversation with my girlfriend, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is important because, you know, if, if you don't have those agreements in place, those are the sort of things that can tear a family apart. You know, the, sure. you don't want your loved ones going to each other's throats with a disagreement about what to happen with you. If you're incapacitated. That's right. And here's, here's, here's the interesting thing about that is that if you if you have this estate planning in place it actually there are documents where your girlfriend could put in writing how how she wants things to go right right so yeah. and that's another one that we're going to bring up here which is a living will so a living will is different than the will we were talking about before um but it's it's directed at healthcare providers and if you're to become incapacitated it gives them an idea of your desired care and your treatment and and how you want things to go. And my understanding with living wills is that it's really up to the physician's discretion as far as what's in there um, and and what they're able to do. But at least it's a place where uh, if, if anyone out there has been hospitalized, the, the nurse, that's doing the intake will often ask, do you have estate planning documents? Do you have a living will? And that's the reason why they want to be able to see that. So they know what type of care you're looking for. Um, especially if you're, you're in a really tough place. So yeah, that's, that's another estate planning for all item living will. Yeah. Well, even like a most basic example of that too, is uh, like a do not resuscitate order. Yes. You know, yep. that, that's probably a big, really common one for, you know, elderly individuals who are just, you know, just let me go. You know, I, I don't want you to try and save me. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another really important one. And then the last uh, the of, of that group uh, is a HIPAA authorization. So with, uh, you know, there's a lot of privacy obviously around individuals, uh, healthcare stuff and uh, just about who you're able to share that information with and what a HIPAA authorization allows for is uh, you're able to name people that can be informed about your health issues without having you know to be stopped by that wall of of HIPAA privacy rules. Mm-hmm. So that's another key piece that's in there. And basically, anyone over eighteen uh, goes saying anyone over eighteen with living wills, with HIPAA authorizations, with durable powers of attorney, you can start thinking about getting those in place. I mean, it's it's the odds are pretty small, right? That, that this stuff happens, but God forbid it does. You then have, you have taken some of the control back and at least you're assured of who's going to be making decisions and what, what would I want here and who's going to be informed about what, what my health stuff is. Uh, so yeah, that's that set of incapacity planning. That's, that's super vital for, for everyone to get in place. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So we've covered, you know, powers of attorney, we've mm-hmm, covered mm-hmm. wills, uh, we've we've touched on kind of titling of uh, of property and accounts. 
Um, you know, what are what are some other kind of just big important things for people that can be concerned with as far as their their final wishes? I think that one of the others that you want to incorporate there is a revocable living trust. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that, that's getting into that, that T word that we talked about, you know, (laughs) but living trusts tend to be on the more simple side. It's it's different, right? You can Um, go to, you can go to legalzoom.com and, and, you know, set up (laughs) unintentional commercial. We are not sponsored by legal zoom, (laughs) but you can go to any, you know, local attorney or, you know, uh, online attorneys, you know, service. And for like, 500 bucks you can have a trust set up yeah it's um it's a it's simpler to get up and running right and allows for your assets and management of your belongings that are that are within that trust and funded to that trust uh to be cared for and in a way that you outline in the trust document um one of the key things it does also is it's another way for us to get around probate. So the the way it works generally is irrevocable trusts, you put property into the trust, it is fully sealed, and you you just basically give up all control. Those types of trusts are going to go around probate time and time again, because you're no longer the owner, the trust is the owner. And the trust is an entity that's separate from you, that's managing your assets, and it's going to go around probate. With revocable trusts, the reason people like to use revocable trusts is for their flexibility. So you can take property from the trust, you can put property back in. Um, But the really cool thing about them is that at death, they become irrevocable and they seal up and they too go around the probate process generally. The one thing that a lot of people do, and this is a huge mistake, is they'll set up a revocable living trust but they'll leave it unfunded. So there's nothing in the trust. And what happens is, if that's the case, it does not go around probate. Somebody needs to actually go into the probate process to fund the trust. Uh, So the key is, if you have a revocable living trust, to make sure that property is titled to the trust um, and have a funded revocable living trust. What that also does, uh, it's especially important for parents of children Because if there are assets that you want your children to have, and they are minors, they're below age of majority, uh, it allows for there to be professional management in the way that you see fit over how they're going to get the assets uh, throughout the rest of their lives. So think about it. With the guardianship, you're having someone who's going to care, oversee, raise your kids. But we've done nothing with the assets just yet. By having that revocable living trust in place, your trustee on that revocable living trust, if you were to pass away, is going to have your assets, if it's funded with your assets, and then it could have an outline at at age 17, we'd like a distribution of 10% of this trust to go to our kids. At age 27, we want another 25% to be distributed to the kids. At age 30, we want the balance of the trust to be distributed to, to the kids. So it it creates uh, some order around that so that it's not just in the chaos of getting sorted out through probate. Um, so really another really great useful tool. Anyone that owns property 
uh, if they're worried about where does my property go at death or even incapacity. Uh, revocable living trusts are also used when incapacitated. So it's a way to manage your assets and have your assets managed while incapacitated as well. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Important stuff and not that difficult to set up, like we said. So no, definitely something to, uh, to be, you know, aware of and something to advise our clients about. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's really all I have on my short list, but here's the benefit for CFP professionals, but people that are, are working with clients, there is, there, there are very few that are out there who have the marks that are needed to draft these document document. Okay. Um, but what you can do is have an awareness of what your client has and what they might need and facilitate that conversation with the estate planning attorney. If your clients are in a place where they're willing to go forward, uh, this is, I believe is one of those core risk management issues that are important to address before you get into a lot of the wealth building stuff, right? Um, and you add a ton of value by helping to guide this conversation. I really think that the estate planning stuff, it's one of those things where even though the odds might be such that you're not going to see any of this click into action for years and or hopefully until the end of your life, right? It, it'll help you sleep easier at night. And that that's the real big value. So I just think it's so important that there's some fluency around what these are, what they do, and um, and also staying on top of it for updating. Like you mentioned, Jerry, checking in on beneficiaries is so crucial. Just just to know, like, all right, I'm going to check in on on my beneficiaries, make sure that everyone looks good because things change there. But also your estate planning documents. Uh, checking in on your durable power of attorneys every three to five years is becoming more commonplace. Just make sure there's no changes. Uh, some banks require fresh signatures at that frequency, so you're not dealing with an old document. Um, but yeah, an opportunity to add value, to help people out, and to help them sleep easier at night. I think this is this is great stuff for planners to start doing in their practices. Awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, hopefully that helps our listeners a little bit, both in uh, test worlds and especially real worlds. I think this is a really powerful episode for that. Uh, but uh, with that, I think we'll wrap it up and best of luck to uh, all the test takers out there. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Great episode. Yeah. Great episode. Adam. Take it easy. Hope you have a great one.